following podcast contains descriptions of rape, sexual abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. Nobody looks at Sherman McCrary or, or, um, or Carl as, as somebody important in life. They're angry and miserable and diminished throughout their whole life. They weren't just there to rob the store, unfortunately. They took Sherry, uh, kidnapped her in a vehicle, tied her hands behind her back with her own nylon stockings, and they murdered her out in the desert. The McCrary family were low-educated, countrified folks who got together and had something in their DNA that just caused them to be antisocial and eventually end up being murderers. Out there in the desert someplace, we went way back off on this little road off the highway and we were arguing out behind the car. I told him, I said, Sherman, what are we going to do with that girl? He said, well, she's got to die. He says, you know, kidnapping carries the death penalty too. So I told her, I'm just going to tie you up so you'll be able to get loose. And there's a highway about a half a mile up the way. You go down the highway, you hit your ride back by one of those. By that time, we'll be long gone. The girl wasn't uh, that frightened. She was frightened, but she wasn't hysterical or anything like that. Because I'm trying to keep her calm. I think by me telling her what was going to happen to her, she pulled over, she got out, and thought Sherman was on the other side of the car. And I turned around, started for the car when the gun started to go off. And I just froze. Because that first shot went off, I knew it was too late. The era of some of the most heinous serial killers of all time. Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the McCrary family. Violent, nasty, and they didn't care about anything other than gratifying their own base desires. Though little known today, they were one of the most murderous families in history. Led by a psychopathic patriarch and his depraved son-in-law. Sherman was a small-time screw-up. Carl was a small-time screw-up. When these guys got together, there was a chemistry between them. And then at some point, they walked into that Winchell's Donut Shop in Salt Lake City and saw Sherry Martin. And just robbing the donut shop became, let's take the girl. They roamed the country robbing, raping, and killing up to 22 people in 1971 and 72. Most of them, very young women. You're about to hear their story, raw and ruthless. And we'll hear, for the first time, exclusive prison recordings of one of the killers. After we killed the girls, we never talked about it. We said nothing and rode along in the car and just tried to ignore it. As he tells all. I've been on this ride alone. The sun goes down, I howl and moan, and I know. 
the cries of fellow aching souls. I need something to calm. I sent a track that leads me on and I show my teeth cause time has made me cold. From Wondery and Trooper Entertainment, this is Families Who Kill, the Donut Shop Murders. My eyes are closed, my eyes are closed. August 20th, 1971, Lakewood, Colorado, a peaceful suburb outside of Denver. We pick up our story with the disappearance of a young girl, Leora Rose Looney. Like Sherry Martin in Salt Lake, Leora was also kidnapped from a donut shop, a Mr. Donut, a neighborhood favorite. Leora was a bubbly, responsible 20-year-old woman who had been taught the importance of hard work by her father, Virgil Looney a welder who moved the family often in search of gigs. Leora had two other jobs aside from the donut shop. She had plans to visit Kansas in a week to visit her boyfriend of two years, Barry. Leora was a church missionary and a Sunday school teacher. Her night manager at the Mr. Donut said Leora would never leave the donut shop unattended. It was unthinkable, he said. About a hundred bucks was missing from the register. Just three days after the robbery, Leora Looney's body was found in a grassy cattle pasture near the Wyoming border, hundreds of miles from where she was taken. A rancher working on some fencing had spotted her. Sherry Martin was still missing, but Leora had been raped, strangled, and shot twice at close range with a 32 pistol. Her killers had ridden around with her for hours, a picture of unimaginable terror. Here's Anya and Kevin again from the Murder Sheet podcast. Leora Looney was a young woman who worked at a donut shop in Lakewood, Colorado. And her kidnapping and murder actually occurred pretty shortly after the Martin case. So Looney uh, disappeared on the evening of August 20th, just a few days after Sherry disappeared. When somebody, a customer, most likely found the donut shop unattended and uh, police checked in, saw that uh, Leora's purse was left open. Um, about $100 had been stolen from the shop. And so it's another missing person's case. In this case, uh, unlike Sherry Martin's case, Leora was actually found relatively quickly. She, um, three days later, uh, she that she was found to have been uh, strangled and shot with another 32 caliber gun. She'd also been strangled, and uh, because they found her quite quickly, they could tell that she had been raped as well. Uh, Leora was found before Sherry Martin was found, so I think maybe there was some thinking that somebody's targeting donut shops, but at this point, they didn't have the benefit of having the ballistics to compare to one another. They wouldn't have that until uh, a few months later. Looney's death terrorized the local community in Lakewood. They had seen a number of murders, but nothing like this. Plus, there was an apparent kidnapping in Salt Lake, also from a donut shop. That was no isolated case. The newfangled Lakewood Department of Public Safety, which had just been erected, came under a heap of local pressure to haul in Looney's killer. Lakewood wasn't even a city until 1969, and no one felt this squeeze more than the young detective that Chief Pierce Brooks put on the case, Detective Joe Fanciulli. 5'11", muscular with a dark Sicilian complexion, 
and a bold mustache. Fanciulli was smart and oozed confidence beyond his 23 years. An Army Reserve officer, there was nothing rookie about him. Here's Bob Miller, a young prosecutor with the Weld County DA's office at the time, who worked closely with Fanciulli. His enthusiasm to get this done and done correctly was very impressive and still is and always will be. I mean, he he was a smart, enthusiastic, energetic, committed cop. Joe was one of the best I've seen. I mean, he's and I've seen a lot of them. He really, really threw himself into this. And he he at a very young age had that instinct that very few people have of what to do next and what this really means or what this really says. He is and was the whole package for for a cop, and especially a detective on a major complicated case. Fanciulli was not your normal breed of detective. Having an undergraduate degree in literature, he thought about things differently as a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. Here's Fanciulli, who, retired from police work, now runs a forensic document examination company with offices in Denver and Florida. This was the summer of 69. Um, the Vietnam War was kind of at its, at its height. Um, that was the year, 69 was the year that they did the draft lottery. And my number in the draft lottery was seven out of 365. So I was, I was at the top of draftability. There were no jobs to be had in the summer of 69. The only way that you stayed out of Vietnam was to be a teacher, a fireman, or a policeman. I, I don't remember how I became aware of it, but I became aware that the Westport, Connecticut Police Department was looking to hire four officers, and they were, they were wanting to hire someone with a college degree. So um, I applied. I thought, you know, what the heck? I can, I can do this until I find a job as a teacher and, you know, kind of protect myself. I had no idea what I was getting into. I applied. There were 2,500 people who applied for four vacancies. And I went through the state civil service testing. And at the end of the testing, I, I was either first or second uh, in the testing. And August 22nd, 1969, I was sworn in as a police officer in Westport, Connecticut. When I got into it, I don't know. I just felt natural. It felt like it's what I should be doing. January, February timeframe. I remember I got a call on the radio to come into the station and see the desk, desk sergeant. And when I went in, I, I got to be kind of friendly with this guy. His name was Woody. And, um, he called me and he says, hey, he says, I, I got this teletype here. You might be interested in this. And he handed me the old, the old style teletype, yellow piece of paper with the ticker tape that came off the teletype machine stuck to it in, in lines. And it was 
from the city of Lakewood, Colorado, announcing the formation of a new police department and looking for a nation a nationwide search to find college-educated police officers who had some experience to help start this police department. And uh, it was about February, early February, I called them and had an interview over the phone. They invited me to come out and I got a phone call and got offered a job. Graduated from the academy, went on the street, first week of December of 1970, and within a week, got sent to the Jefferson County Bank to take the report of the check scheme that Carl and Ginger Taylor were involved in. And that was my introduction to the family. The concept at Lakewood was we, we wore blue blazers, gray slacks. We didn't wear traditional police uniforms. Uh, you know, we, we patrolled the city, but we also investigated any reports that we took. There were no detectives. So you carried a case from beginning to end. In between doing my patrol duties, I was investigating this check case and learning everything I could learn about the family. Got an arrest warrant, found out that they were down in Denver at the St. John's Cathedral where Sherman was working as as, a, as they called it a sextant, but he basically was a janitor. In, in my naivete as a, as a young officer, instead of going down there, just straight down there, I called the church to find out if they were there. And whoever it was that I talked to said, yeah, they're, you know, they're here. Uh, fam the family, they're all living here. And so I started heading down to Denver, had the dispatchers call Denver PD for some backup to go over and arrest them with the warrants I had. Fanchuli figured out that the family hanging paper was living at a house on church grounds provided to the sexton. But on Fanchuli's way to the church with a fistful of warrants, things went awry. On my way out of Lakewood, I got diverted to a serious injury accident that I had to help with, which delayed me for about an hour or so. I later found out that in between the time I'd called the church and got down there, somebody at the church told Sherman, hey, somebody from the Lakewood Police Department's called looking for you. And as they did so many times afterwards and probably before, they packed their bags and were gone. And when I got down to Denver, two or three hours later, they were in the wind. They were on the road. And it always kind of struck me after, after the fact, after I found out what all they really were into, I wonder, I wonder how many people would still be alive if I if I had ever gotten down there in time to arrest them and put them in jail. You know the thought the thought process of one little thing changes in history and you don't know what the, the ripple effect that is that is down the road. The near miss with the McCrarys reminded Fanchuli of another close call he had with the infamous serial killer Ted Bundy. The other time in my career when something like that happened that caused me to think about those same kinds of things 
was, I was in Aspen, Colorado, in the old courthouse testifying in a forgery trial. There were two courtrooms on the second floor of the old Aspen County Courthouse. And I was testifying in one of them. And Ted Bundy was in the other courtroom going through some hearings on the murder that he'd been arrested for. And that was the day that he jumped out the second floor window of the courthouse and fled. And this was all going on while I was in the room next door testifying in another trial. And, and I, I always always thought about that. Had, had that not happened, how many more women would, would not have been killed if he, had, if he had not escaped from the courthouse that day? But the Lakewood Department of Public Safety was going full bore on this case, led by the fiercely determined Chief Pierce Brooks, who was out cruising, unusual for a chief, the night of Leora's kidnapping. He was out the night that Looney went missing. He was on the street, and he responded. And he knew, as soon as he pulled up on that scene, he knew it was a kidnapping. So we we had the crime scene technicians respond. You know, um, it was handled. The, the whole place was processed. It was handled from the get-go. We ended up being the only law enforcement agency that had physical evidence, which is why we were able to do what we did. And it was because of him, because he recognized his years of experience. He recognized what we had. And when he said, do this, do that, do the other thing, nobody argued. They just did it. Before coming to Colorado, Chief Pierce Brooks had been a legendary homicide cop in Los Angeles who led the famed Onion Field investigation into the murder of an LAPD cop. One LAPD colleague described Brooks as the closest thing he had ever seen to Sherlock Holmes. Another word from Finchuli on the chief. What happened that night set the stage. Brooks... Brooks was the chief of police, but at night, especially on weekends, he would get in his car and he would drive around the city. So people are out there handling calls and they're making traffic stops and they're doing whatever it is they're doing. And it wasn't unusual for you to have a traffic stop, call in the traffic stop. You're on, I'm, 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 on, I'm on Colfax and uh, I'm stopping a car with four subjects. Um, send me back up and you get out of the car and you approach this vehicle and you see a car pull up behind your police car and you look back and it's Brooks pulling up on your traffic stop as your backup the chief of police pulls up and as your backup <laughs> and, and, and then all of a sudden, you, know, you don't know if you're more afraid of the four guys in the car or afraid that you're going to fuck something up and Brooks is going to have your ass the next day in his office. <laughs> this is Bob Miller, the assistant DA in Weld County at the time, a fierce prosecutor. He would go on to become the U.S. attorney for the state of Colorado. He, as chief of police, and Blake was a fairly sizable place, he on his own went out to the crime scene. He was riding around and he went to the crime scene. And I was impressed that he had that that sixth sense that, you know, good homicide detectives have 
when he arrived at the scene because a lot of times people are willing to say, well, she just took off with the money as happens sometimes and, and sort of take the easy way out. But Pierce had the antenna up and he said, wait a minute, we're going to rope this off. We're going to process the whole place. And but for that decision, this case would not have happened. With Fanchuli leading the probe, the Lakewood police mobilized to suss out what happened to Leora at the donut shop, but the evidence was skimpy. At the scene, Tex gathered up a rubber band, a cigarette butt, and 45 hand and fingerprints to sift through. A Mr. Donut mug with a pool of coffee and a soaked napkin at the bottom, a metal cream container, and a spoon. Down the line, this would make up the most damning evidence against the kidnappers and killers, but not yet. Some shoes and clothing found by a telephone repairman working by the railroad tracks were reported to the cops and checked out. Car sightings that fit the description of the one seen outside the Mr. Donut were checked out, their owners questioned. And police fielded countless crank calls, many of them so-called revenge reports from wives against their husbands. This was glacially slow, meticulous work, coupled with the fact that detective work in the early 1970s was less than high-tech. Here's Fanchuli again about fighting crime in the pre-computer, pre-DNA era. We had converted taxicab radios. It was so funny because we had a small frequency band and the county jail was in Golden. During the day, there was a an appliance repair company who had radios in their in, in their couple of trucks and their radio frequency was very close to our to the police department's radio frequency and when you were driving out to golden with a prisoner in the back of the police car the washing machine repair guy is coming over your radio trying to call his dispatcher i mean that's funny stuff there were no surveillance cameras. I had um, three by five card files and and they were broken into sections and I had a three by five card made on every vehicle, every license plate, every identity, every location where they stayed, every bank that they had an account at. Um, and, and all had all these files so that when a jurisdiction would come up or you know some some jurisdiction would contact us after we sent out nationwide broadcasts and said does anybody have similar crimes to this i could go into this card file and find out if was is there a chance they were there and that's how we could put them in florida here's bob miller again it, it, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant first of all because most of us didn't have near enough people to do the job we were supposed to be doing, but all of us wanted to do the best possible job. So it was a lot of hard work, but we didn't have computers. We didn't have a lot of scientific evidence. In fact, you know, looking back, the one thing we didn't have, which today has been a boon to uh, prosecutors and law enforcement is DNA. In fact, my son just solved a case that he and the police department tried a case that was 33 years old that I started here because we didn't have DNA and they did. So we didn't have DNA. The, the only scientific thing we really ever had was what was played a prominent role in this case was fingerprints. And we did have a fingerprint on a coffee cup in this case, 
And that was really the only scientific evidence that you could muster in those days. Now you could, in cases where you had blood at the scene, you could do blood types and kind of narrow it down on blood typing, but everything was, was manual. We didn't have cell phones, we didn't have computers, uh, we didn't have major crime labs like they do today where you have crime labs on the scene and uh, that's all equipped with all the modern day equipment. I mean, it was, it was a lot of plotting. And that's why when you talk about the detectives involved, they became the preeminent way you got crime solved. It was by hard work and shoe leather. <laughs> As the Lakewood PD tried to wrap their arms around the perplexing and disturbing kidnapping murder of Leora Looney, the killers, meanwhile, were in the wind. Who knew where they would kill again and how? In his confession made to Chief Pierce Brooks, Joe Fanchuli, and local TV journalist Bob Palmer while he was in prison, Carl laid bare the Looney killing in all of its chilling detail, and we're going to hear it now. A warning to our listeners, it is disturbing. Remember that these tapes are over 50 years old and damaged. So we had an actor read the transcripts, which are 100% accurate. This was the other thing. Uh, I had no intentions to rob that donut shop. I think that Pierce has done enough police work that he will agree with this. With what went on in that shop that night, it would be kind of stupid of me to intentionally be doing what I was doing. Wouldn't you agree with that, Pierce? We came to Denver. I told Sherman after a little episode in Salt Lake City uh, that I was quite upset about it. And I waited until he had sobered up. And I sit down, I talked with him. I said, now you got me involved. I believe it was intentionally done because I believe that you knew that I was fixing to pull out because I'd gotten this job. And I think this was the way that he had figured that if he had gotten me involved in this, that I couldn't pull out, that I was deep in. And to be honest, I was scared. The main reason for coming to Denver was to look over some supermarkets because I just wanted to see what they had. Okay, you got me involved now. Look at all this nickel and dime stuff. We're going after something over there. Over there, you got 15 grand. There's two points to me. There's two points, actually. One is goddamn sure no one gets hurt. The other one is there will be a lot of people in there. This is the margin for safety. Ain't nobody gonna get hurt. You can't kidnap 10, 15 people. You can't kill that many. But I'll tell you what, in Vancouver, Sherman's gonna kill the whole damn bunch. He forced 12, 15 people into a big freezer. He was gonna waste them right there in the freezer. But I left him, and because I wasn't there, he wouldn't go through with it. This was the right after Cynthia Glass. Cynthia Glass was a girl Carl and Sherman would kill in Portland, months down the line, at the tail end of their spree. We were out in Adams County, and I told Sherman, I'll tell you what let's do. Uh, by this time, we've been back over here in Lakewood in case the supermarket, and we're coming down the road. We're coming down uh, West Colfax, and I said, let's stop and get some coffee. 
but it was uh, just incidental that it happened to be that donut shop. I'm not even thinking about the guns in the car. I know the gun is the first part because I know I just seen it two or three minutes before that. So I know the guns in the glove box as soon as we walked in. When we walked in the donut shop, there was two people standing up there at the counter, a man and a woman. And then uh, they just leaving. We walked around, sat down. Waitress brought us two cups of coffee. And where I'm just sitting there bullshooting, just talking about this, that, and the other thing. Just as soon as she got out of earshot, we're talking about the store. And uh, I guess that I had studied Sherman long enough that right about that time, I noticed something about him. He finished his coffee and said, I'm going out to the car. And I said, I'll be out there in a minute after I finish my coffee. And I thought I'd get a couple of donuts to take back to the motel. I finished my coffee. I got up, walked up to the register. She was in the back. Well, I could see through the glass, you know, through the doors. I could see her back there in the corner. And about that time, she looked up and she looked around. Well, I can see who she's talking to, but it's somebody that she's talking to. And then I see her kind of breathe in. It didn't look right because I've been around a few times. Just the look on her face. I knew something was weird back there. And I stepped on around there at the end of the counter. And then I could see Sherman standing there with a gun. So that's when I busted through the doors. What in the hell? He told me just go to get the money out of the register. I turned around and I cleaned the register out. I just got the money out of the register in a sack, and this redheaded kid comes up. Late teens, early 20s, youngster. I remember him because he was redheaded like a carrot top. And he come in, you know, he wanted to buy some donuts. I'm going to have to play this straight. Here, we've done robbed the place. Sherman's back with her. I'm thinking with a gun on her, you know. And I've got to play it straight with this kid, you know. So, I told he said he wanted half a dozen donuts. And to show you how blowed my mind was, I charged the kid 99 cents for a half a dozen donuts. At 99 cents a dozen, I charged him 99 cents for half a dozen. This redheaded kid had a solid make on Carl and Sherman, and his recollection of them, spurred partly by Carl overcharging him for the donuts, will help the Lakewood PD create convincing portraits of the killers that will be vital down the line. If I hadn't overcharged him, he might not have thought anything about it. In fact, he probably thought it was. He probably wouldn't even come back that night. He paid, went out, got in his car, and left. Well, as soon as he drove out of sight, I hit the door to the back. Well, as soon as I went back there, there wasn't nobody there. And as I opened the back door, There was a car parked out there by the back door. Yeah, the girl's in there with Sherman. Well, she's calm, quiet. I walked up there to the car there and said, hey, what do you think you're doing? Come on, he said. I said, no, I said, I just had a visit in there. I don't want to run into again. I tried to tell him about it. He said, well, that's all right. 
They won't remember it. I told them, I said, Sherman, now look what. What I said was this. I don't want no repeat, you know? I said, I don't want no repeat. She don't know what we're talking about. She doesn't realize what we're talking about. But he knows what we're talking about. And uh, I said, all right. Just like I say, uh, this is the way it's going to be. So we left with her. We started, like I said, Sherman had been drinking. He got one of them wine kicks. So evidently it told the girl that I had the gun, which I didn't have. Uh, we got out someplace outside of Denver. I can't remember the name of the place. Some bar on the side of the highway. And Sherman said, I want to stop here and get me a drink. Well, I'm thinking, you know, if he's out of the car long, I'm going to split. And Sherman started to get out of the car, and he stopped and turned around, and he looked at me, and he said, I tell you what, when I come back, she better be there. In my mind, I got two things there. But as a fact, I believe he'd kill me. I believe he would. Another thing is, I can't go off and leave him sitting there. I got no cleanup with my wife. What am I going to tell anybody if I show up without her? So I was sitting there talking with her, and she was scared of Sherman. And she was telling me what all he had been talking to her about. She's real nervous and upset about the things that he had told her. And I said, well, I won't let him hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. So Sherman came back to the car, and he had a styrofoam cup like that full of whiskey. So we drove up the other side of Greeley. I stopped this first time, you know, we got out of the car and I told him, well, this is good enough, way out in the country. So I'm thinking by this time, you know, it's going to be a repeat, just sure as hell, by this time. My mind is trying to think how I can get out of it, you know? So we start driving along and after we get to the inside of Greeley, from then on, there ain't nothing. So I knew we were almost wild. And I told Sherman, we got to let her go. He said, next place you find to get off the highway. So I told her to get in the back seat, so she did. And I found this turnoff, and we got over. He was in the back seat with her talking to her. I turned off on this ranch property, and uh, she finally realized that she was going to get raped. She was crying. So Sherman asked me if I wanted to, and I said, no way. No way. I don't want any part of that. Not at all. And by this time, I was disgusted. I'm disgusted. I'm tired. And uh, everything is bad enough as it is. Just to add a little more to it, I was more concerned thinking about trying to keep her alive. I know Sherman says something different about what happened, but think about this. It seems kind of strange, doesn't it? That if I was going to kill her, but if I had that on my mind, that I would do something like that with 9,000 witnesses at the donut shop. I know in my mind these people can come back later and put a finger right on me. Do I look like I'm that stupid? What Carl is saying here is that there was no way he would have intended to kidnap and kill Leora, given that he and Sherman were in plain sight of so many potential witnesses. 
This was Sherman's reckless and he says stupid escapade that would cause both of them to get caught. Eventually he'd be right. This is ridiculous. It's stupid. There ain't no way I wouldn't hurt this girl in any way. Sherman couldn't leave it alone. Whenever he saw it, he couldn't one way or the other. I've got, I tell you what, my wife took good care of me. Now back to Leora, as Carl allegedly wonders what he can do to intervene and stop Sherman from killing her. I think that I figured this was fixing to be a repetition, you know. And in my mind, if I'm trying to think, what can I do? How can I keep her from getting getting wasted? I don't want the girl to get killed. And Sherman had already made up his mind. And I told him. I didn't like that idea of him raping a girl. Uh, and uh, he let me know pretty damn quick. He just gave me to understand he still had that gun. So, in my, the way I looked at it was, uh, if I keep agitating him, I'll probably get us both killed. So he's gonna rape her. If I try to stop it, he'd kill me, then rape her anyway. Carl's use of the term repetition is intriguing and present. The term serial killer hadn't been coined yet, but repetitive homicide and repetition compulsion are terms often used in the study of serial killers. So I can't do her any good about that. But I'm trying to think, well, how can I keep him from doing that? Uh, so he asked me if I was going to. And I said, no way, there ain't no way. Because number one, I wouldn't want that to get back to Ginger, no way. I told him, I don't want nothing to do with it. Do whatever you want to do. And I got out of the car. He got out. And he finally got out of the car. He had raped the girl. And she was sitting in the back seat crying. No, I'm standing at the front of the car, smoking a cigarette. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to think in my own mind, because I know he's going to kill her. There's no doubt in my mind that he's going to shoot her. So how in the hell can I keep him from doing it? Well, I came up with an idea that might sound a little bit cold-blooded, bloodthirsty, but in my mind, it was the only way I could keep him from shooting her. She said, uh, you told me he was going to kill me. I says, I'll tell you what I do. I says, uh, I'll try to save your life because I don't want you to die. But I've got to make it look good to him. I said, uh, there's only one way that I can do that. I got to make him think that I killed you. Well, this scared her, which I don't blame her. So that's when I tied her up with the rope. I got her out of the car. I gave her hands a good tie. I got her out of the car and told her, now look, I said, I'm gonna strangle you, but I'm just gonna do it just enough to knock you out. Cause I know it's gonna take just so long to knock a person out. And by all appearances, they're dead. And I figured Sherman's drunk enough that I can do this and I can convince him that she's dead. Then we can get out of that field. So he's standing at the front of the car watching me. And I walked away from the car and I got her. And the last minute she slipped and she said, 
you're not going to kill me. And I told her, no, I'm not going to kill you. So that's when I strangled her with the rope. So as soon as she went down, I went up. And I don't know. The doctor says that that's partially due to strangulation. I guess I probably got a little too heavy on her. But anyway, Sherman came walking over, you know, and looked down there and said, is she dead? And I told him, well, sure she's dead. I picked her up and carried her over this little old road. I figured I want to get in the way quick uh, because I'm thinking I don't know how long she's going to be out. And if she starts to come to before I could take and get him away from her, then she's going to be dead. There's no way I can keep him from doing it then. So I got up, stopped me, said, wait a minute. Tell you what, we better take her clothes off. That way when they find the body, she'll be harder to identify. And I told him, all right. And he went ahead and started tearing her clothes off. So I helped him and I'm wanting to get away. So we turned away and started walking. And he stopped and he looked back and he said, are you sure she's dead? And I told him, yes, Sherman, she's dead. They stood there for a minute and he said, I'm going to make goddamn sure she's dead. And I told him, there ain't no sense in that, you know. I said, now look. I said, don't you know if you shoot that girl? I said, you just left one over in Utah with a bunch of bullets in her. And I says, you got the same gun right there. And I said, if you shoot the girl with that gun, I said, they're going to tag it as the same gun I says do you realize that well that's alright they'll never know well there's no talking to him when he got like that he just pulled the trigger so I just walked off again as with Sherry Martin Carl lays this killing at Sherman's feet it's obviously a huge stretch to think that Carl was merely a bystander to this murder he shot her three or four times he came back to the car, you know, and I'm sitting there, and I asked him, why? And he said, I had to make damn sure she was dead. Years later, Carl was asked how much money he and Sherman would nab during these robberies. His response, not enough. It's never enough. But was he talking about stolen cash, or rather, the insatiable urge to kill? Next week, a pair of adorable newlyweds meet a harrowing fate, Forrest and Jenna Covey. I think about how terrible it would be to be kidnapped with someone you love and to watch them suffer and die and not be able to stop it. We'll hear the gut-wrenching story of the victim's niece. My father's sister and brother-in-law were murdered by the family. It was something that shadowed over our family our entire lives. It, it affected everything. We'll also go back an entire century to explore another family who terrorized the American Midwest. It's all on episode three of Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders. Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders is a production of Trooper Entertainment and Wondery. It is executive produced by Dave Kaplan, Randy Tatt, and Alan Weeder. Written by Alan Weeder. Co-executive produced, narrated, and edited by James Carroll. Supervising producer is Michael Wiley. 
Consulting producer is Detective Joe Finchuli. Ethan Darbone is the voice of Carl Taylor. Special thanks to Mark Turner and A3 Artist Agency. Mixed and mastered by Wildwoods Picture and Sound. Theme song and scoring is by Nick O'Leary and Hush Empire. Additional music is from the Jingle Punks Library. Additional production by Lily Williner. Cover art by Teenage Stepdad. If you have questions or information about the McCrary case, feel free to email us at donutshopmurders at gmail.com. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast you enjoy. Thank you for your support. 